Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. To mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that brought an end to the troubles in Northern Ireland, we're rebroadcasting a series first broadcast in 2019, Walking the Border, about the walls and borders that divide Ireland and threaten the future. In Ireland, there are two kinds of walls. In the first episode of this series, we talked about the literal ones, the peace walls built in Belfast and other Northern Ireland cities during the Troubles. The Troubles are long gone. They ended with the Good Friday Agreement of 25 years ago. But the walls and the gates and everything they symbolize remain. And then there's the figurative wall the now invisible border between Northern Ireland and the Republic to the south. For most of the time since it was imposed on that small island, the border has been the cause of bloody conflict. And now, after 25 years of relative quiet, while the return of the border is less likely than ever, the fear of that old familiar sectarian rancor is back. The second part of our series is called The Rule of the Land. I am about to begin a long walk, travelling Ireland's border from end to end. I want to see the entire line, following it no matter where it brings me. Some of the border is water, so I'll have to borrow a boat occasionally. Most travellers are only on the border for the blink of an eye. It's something to go over on the way to a destination in the north or south. But the border itself is my destination, and I will follow it east to west, come what may. That's from the book The Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border by Irish mapmaker and writer Garrett Carr. The book describes his 500-kilometre journey across fields and lakes and bogs, along rivers and hedgerows, mapping the places, the events and the people on both sides that shape the Irish border's story. I grew up quite close to it, but when I grew up along the border, it was, it was a hard border, although we didn't use that term at the time. There were customs checks on it, and there was also uh, military checkpoints as well. So crossing the border was a bit of an ordeal, and that's how it was. Um, that's how I remembered it in my mind. History remembers that border as the erratic line drawn in 1921 after the South's declaration of independence. The border stretched from Carlingford Lock in the east to Lock Foyle in the west, following old county lines from the 16th century. That meant it zigzagged across roads, splitting communities, sometimes even houses, in two. In the eyes of many, the border was an abomination, and borderlands were never a destination. And that was the draw for Garrett Carr. So I thought, suppose you actually went to visit Ireland's most maligned place, most ignored place. 
that could be interesting. And that that was the border. I have no doubt about that. As soon as you think in those terms, you immediately think of the border. Just building on that, is there such a thing as the idea of a border of borderland? Like, is there a mentality that we can point to? Borderland. When I was walking the border, one unexpected thing was that I kind of started to feel like I was discovering a new country, which is not something I expected. So we in Ireland, we the north and the south, and that's all pretty obvious. But as I was walking along it, I did start to feel like I was discovering a kind of a third place, that there was the north and the south, and then there's this other thing called that I call the borderland in between them. And it sort of has its own tone. And I'd even be tempted to say its own values, although it's difficult to get into, because obviously it's full of terrible generalizations. But people live on each side of the line, let's say within 10 miles of the line, have a lot more in common with each other perhaps than they do with people in the, their respective capitals. They've grown up in similar circumstances. They know the difficulties and perhaps even sometimes the advantages of living along a border. And uh, one thing I can tell you though on the border is you, you meet older people, a sort of pensioner sort of age, who and that's, that's, you hear a lot of anxiety from them. And I think that's because they can remember how things were before and they can remember how quickly things can sort of unravel and how quickly things can sort of start to go wrong. While the line marking Ireland's border was drawn in 1921, its roots long predate that, steeped in Ireland's constant revolt under British rule. In the late 19th century, that revolt had taken a more political shape, a movement for home rule, a semi-autonomous self-government based in Dublin. Historian Dermot Ferreter explains what happened when that effort failed. The question then is, what's going to replace that sense of pride in Irish nationalist endeavour? A lot threw their energies into cultural endeavour. You see an interesting focus, and again, there's international dimensions to this. Uh, you see a strong um, interest in Irish antiquity, in the Irish language, uh, in distinct Irish literature, in reclaiming a tradition and a language. The Gaelic League, which is formed to promote the Irish language in 1893, becomes a mass movement. Uh, you have very prominent intellectual figures like W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory. Uh, they're very daring. They're very um, innovative. Um, many of them have nationalist sympathies and sensibilities. But many of them are also steeped in the Anglo-Irish world. They're very comfortable. Uh, they're very much part of uh, an Anglo-Irish elite. But they have a very strong sense of an Irish national rebirth um, through poetry, through plays, through literature, and in particular reclaiming the folk tradition that was so steeped in antiquity. And, and, and there was a fear that that would be lost unless there was a concerted push to revive and to make people aware of this uh, tradition. And it's highly idealised. Um, and it's one of the reasons, I suppose, why after Parnell, Yeats described Ireland as being like soft wax. It was waiting to be moulded. Uh, and those who were prepared to prioritise cultural endeavours could begin to mould it in a particular way and perhaps get people to think more about culture than politics. But they were still inextricably linked. You couldn't divorce them. And many people found their way into politics through cultural activities. Indeed, Patrick Pearce said, uh, as the leader of the 1916 Rising um, and the head of the provisional government of the Republic that was declared in 1916, he maintained that had there not been a Gaelic League 
there would have been no rising. Back on the water, back to the border. As we paddle inland, mountains rise to port and starboard. South are the coolies. North, the mountains of Morn sweep down to the sea. The coolies are ruffled and pitted, the Morns taller and polished smooth by glaciers. Mountain ranges of differing personalities and this wide band of water between. I sense the edge of kingdoms. It's a good place to put a border, says Paddy. I mean, if you have a border and need a place for it. I suppose there's a sort of a psychological trouble to how a lot of people look at it. That it's a kind of... uh, Nobody really is a big fan of the border itself. Even people who perhaps consider it important to their identity. So I'd be thinking here primarily of Northern Irish Unionist communities. But even they wouldn't really say that they love to go see the border. Uh, they, they love to go hike along the border and feel all in touch with the border. Uh, even for them, it's just a, it's a, it's a symbol, it's a line on the map, a, a significant one. The border itself, people didn't tend to approach. And then, obviously, for, uh, for people of different political backgrounds, that it's even more troubling because it's, uh, it's something they may consider an injustice or an affront to their identity or something that they feel confronts them in ways they don't like. You, you talk about these different attitudes about the border, and, and we'll get into that a bit, but I just wonder what attitude you went in with. What was your relationship with this border? I'm not entirely sure. I suppose what the peace process had done with the border was it had taken it off the ground and just made it a thing on the map, a symbol, a line on the map. And I knew the line wasn't accurate. Because actually when you go to the frontier, you, there's just nothing there. It's, an, it's invisible. And people are living very fluidly uh, north and south and traveling across it. It's important to remember the border doesn't really have much physical presence. There, there isn't a big mountain range there or anything like that. There are a few lakes and bodies of water and rivers, but it's not really. There are lots of other lakes and, and bodies of water and rivers. The border is fairly random. So... I wanted to to actually see what it was actually like as opposed to just letting the symbol shape my notion of what the border was. I wanted to kind of open up the line. And so therefore, I suppose I just considered myself a kind of an explorer. I tried not to have too much preconceived notions of what I was going to find there, which was probably just as well because there uh, there were things unexpected. One thing I didn't expect was just how beautiful the country is. I didn't really anticipate that. I'd imagined, I suppose, people the world over may have a rather brutal impression of it because they remember it from news reports, especially during the Troubles, but more recently as well. But in actual fact, what you find is a really slow, peaceful, rural environment. For some people who live in the... We we have 32 counties, as you know, six partitioned from the remaining 26, six Ulster counties. And for people who are only in historical terms a heartbeat away from us, from our generation, what it meant for them was for farmers and for factory workers and for families and communities in those six counties, they woke up one morning and they had been annexed off from the rest of of the country. Mary Lou MacDonald is the leader of Sinn Féin 
a left-leaning, staunchly nationalist political party that has long defined itself by its opposition to partition and to British power in Ireland. And so it lives up to its name. Sinn Féin means we ourselves. Historically, it had ties to the paramilitary Irish Republican Army, the IRA. But these days, it's a more conventional political party and has elected representatives on both sides of the Irish border. For MacDonald and her party, what happened to the people of Northern Ireland in 1921 was and continues to be a catastrophe. They woke up one morning and they they were left with the horrible reality that the struggle for freedom, the anti-colonial struggle to achieve unity and equality and all of the things enunciated in our founding document of the proclamation of 1916, that they had been left behind. I mean, they woke up to a horrific nightmare. And it's interesting when you go into, into communities and you meet older people up in the north and they remember that. They recall that. They recall, if not directly, their parents telling that story of, of just that moment of, of familial and community trauma. Partition was disaster. Partition, the, the province of Ulster on the island of Ireland. What it amounted to was what James Connolly, one of our great patriots, predicted, which was a carnival of reaction. We had on our island then, instead of the bright, bright new post-colonial dawn for Ireland, we had uh, formed two deeply reactionary states, north and south. A state in the north that was, to use the term, a Protestant place for Protestant people, where people of of a different faith or people who were Gaelic and Irish were were frankly not wanted. They were in a gerrymandered nightmare and it became a a one-party, single-party state in which to get a job or a house if you were a Catholic was just a nightmare. Of course, that would in time give rise to the civil rights movement. And when that was repressed, it gave rise to deep and profound conflict. And I think it's important to say that in the first instance, that conflict in the north wasn't actually a religious one. It wasn't about finer theological points of transubstantiation or the virgin birth. This was a colonial clash and we, we, we suffered hugely from that. In the south, it has to be said, a state was formed by the, the counter-revolutionaries who sort of put all the lofty ideals through the shredder and it became um, overly enthralled to the Catholic Church. And I say that as a Roman Catholic, it became quite authoritarian and quite repressive. And we're only kind of now moving beyond that. So it was a, a disastrous moment, a painful moment, a moment in which, I suppose, in a very profound way, the dream died for for a whole generation of people who had who had fought for freedom for women, north and south. Uh, but let me say, as a Dublin woman, particularly in the south, uh, it wasn't lost on any of the women revolutionaries that they had fought for their freedom, and what they got was their their enslavement. And we had decades of that. But what was partition? It it, it was for us in the colonial retreat of Britain. Um, They did, as they have done elsewhere in the world, they annexed off a part of the land and we are paying the price of that ever since. Now, our our unionist friends in the north will will mark the moment of partition with joy and celebration. I mean, there's there's no celebration in sundering um, a very small island and everything that was to follow from it. 
The Irish border is a geographic nonsense. It's a ridiculous border. If you consider 100 years ago what the options were in deciding the uh, border, and there, were, there was consideration given to this. There was the idea that you could try and use local government boundaries or you could try um, and, and, and use parliamentary uh, divisions or constituencies. But it was ultimately decided to go with the original county lines. Now, these county lines had been formed in the 16th and the 17th century. And the way they evolved is that they, they were settled along rivers. But along rivers, you have the uh, building up of settlement and commerce and trade and, and housing and habitation and all that. Um, and ultimately, of course, you know, these rivers... Uh, are, are are representing uh, very considerable uh, settlements on both sides uh, of those rivers. And what the border meant when it was decided along county lines, the original county lines, what it meant was a very crude cutting through hinterlands. You're talking about cutting through villages and towns and bridges and in some cases individual houses and farms. There was an element of farce to that. It was like somebody had taken a red pencil and just decided that the pubs were closing uh, in an hour and we need to get this done. Uh, So can we just all put our hands on the pencil and draw it through the map? There was an element of farce to it. But it was also a way of trying to ensure that the unionists had an inbuilt majority. So what you did was you took the six counties where they were at their strongest, even though there's always a substantial Catholic minority, and the minority is roughly one third uh, at the creation of the state of Northern Ireland. Uh, six counties for unionists gave them an inbuilt two thirds majority. They're the counties they wanted. They got those counties regardless of, of where the lines fell. So that was a huge complication. Uh, it meant that people found themselves on the wrong side of the border. In other words, if you were a nationalist and you find yourself in one of those six counties, you know, you have this border, uh, you're on the wrong side of it. Uh, But what is sometimes forgotten is that there was a very substantial unionist minority uh, in Southern Ireland on the wrong side of the border, Uh, counties uh, Monaghan and Cavan and Donegal. The population then was roughly one-fifth unionist. It's a substantial minority, and they're on the wrong side of the border as they see it. So it creates two minority problems, really, on the island of Ireland. The border has many moods, but not as many as me. I walk by the river between encroaching hills. I am always heading into a fold that, when I get there, I find leads to another that is just the same. The same dead-eyed cows standing in their fields, chewing grass, the same bright yellow tags in their ears. When it's time to make camp, I march straight up a round hill that is unpopulated and divided into about five fields. These hills are called drumlins, and there are thousands of them in a thick band stretching across Ireland, much of it corresponding with the borderland. Although this particular round hill form is found in many parts of the world, the name was shaped here in the Irish language from Dromin, by way of Drim and Druim. It means Little Ridge. Along the way you saw some incredible things, some quirky things and some beautiful things. I wonder if you could, before we get into all that detail, you could just give us sort of a high-speed train version of the of the journey. The journey. Well, I went from east to west, and I went from east to west because I felt there was a kind of a bit more of a story in that. 
the border starts quite low down among hills and south of Mansbury hilly country and the border tends to follow streams and rivers so you're always down in valleys and it's quite um, you always feel quite impeded actually the horizon is always very close even oppressive and you can kind of see why during times of military conflict this would have been seen as a very dangerous landscape for you can't you can't see very far far ahead it's easy to be ambushed and these were things that remained relevant right and uh, right from the 1600s to the to the late 20th century uh, but as you go further west then gradually the ground sort of rises a little bit and you and, and there's more bog and sort of open country and the horizon gets lower and the sky gets bigger and it, so I wanted to do it that way so the, the journey would feel like you were going from closed to open and uh, by and large that's that's kind of how it works and then about a third two thirds of the way you hit the foil river and that's quite a substantial river it's about a third of the border by itself and uh, at that point I travelled by canoe as well for parts of it and then you get out of the canoe for the little bit around Derry where the border goes inland again and then back in the canoe again to finish the journey at Loch Foyle, which is a really large bay, a large body of water at the northern end of the border. Sounds a little bit like a slow triathlon or something. Yeah, slow, yeah, I suppose it was, yeah, yeah, with camping, yes. And it sounds, aside from your trips on the, in the canoe, it sounds quite solitary. I mean, you're on your own. Yes, it was quite solitary. I think at the beginning I felt that this was the proper way to do it, that one should, one should commune with the place and... Uh, and to be alone was kind of important to that. So also, it's kind of, I mean, it's not extreme in the sense of danger or anything like that, but it's fairly arduous. And you can't really ask anybody else to do that for you. Yeah. Can you talk, I mean, now that you've seen it all and more than most people, could you speak to the, you called it random, but the sort of the arbitrary nature of this, this border? Well, that is actually a pretty random line, really. That was never meant to do such a job. And... When you travel along it, you can find there's places where it goes down the middle of streets and villages. It even divides some buildings. There are times it can feel fairly ridiculous, really. But it is usually on something. It isn't, it's very rarely just crossing open country. It's usually on a fence or a stream or a hedgerow or something like that. It's usually sort of hosted by something. But you can't, you can't distinguish a border hedgerow from any other hedgerow. There's, 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 there's no difference to it. In fact, sometimes you sort of had trouble pinning down exactly where it was. Yeah, you could ease, quite easily wander off it. I mean, I would keep track by using very detailed ordnance survey maps. So mostly I, I, I was able to keep an eye on the border. But there's definitely, <coughs> there's definitely occasions when I, uh, I wandered off and followed the wrong hedgerow for a mile. It happened a few times. Garrett Carr can be forgiven for losing his way along the border. Everything about it was also confused and contested back when it was first drawn. Following the failed rising against the British in 1916, Sinn Féin won 75% of the Irish seats in the British Parliament in 1918. Ireland declared independence a month later, and that prompted two years of guerrilla warfare between Britain and Ireland and a civil war in the newly formed Free State. A deal with Britain acknowledged the new, divided reality and quelled the fighting. But that agreement ultimately entrenched what was supposed to be a temporary border. And the two Irelands, North and South, were officially separated. The two new states get on with the business 
of building their states, building an identity, a unionist state for a unionist people in Northern Ireland, largely a Catholic state for a Catholic nationalist people in Southern Ireland, uh, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, And there's an ideological Cold War. Uh, There's very little looking over uh, the border in in relation to the politics of that period. Um, But there was also the question of how is it going to be policed? What implications would it have for trade? Uh, It became an economic frontier. That leads to smuggling. There are also customs posts which become targets because a hard border has always attracted uh, violence. It always will uh, attract violence because it's such a divisive symbol. Uh, So you have all of these complications, but you also have the ideological partition. Rhetorically, southern governments throw shapes about reclaiming the fourth green field and ending partition. It's the foundational aspiration of all the major Irish political parties. But in practical terms, they don't have any plan. Because if you're ruling out force, which they do, well, then what can you do? You're not going to win over unionists because they're really hostile um, to Catholicism and to the kind of state that you're uh, trying to create. They're not going to be convinced by the economic arguments because, at least in the earlier years, they're doing better. And they can also rely on subvention from the British Exchequer. And even at a later stage, when Britain gets the welfare state, Northern Ireland, as part of the United Kingdom, gets that. There's nothing like that on offer in Southern Ireland. So there are all sorts of economic implications. Of course, Britain found it a complete nuisance because it had to um, provide a subvention from the British Exchequer for Northern Ireland. And when things go wrong economically in Northern Ireland, as they inevitably do, and that means that Northern Ireland is ever more dependent on, on, on British uh, Exchequer funding. So there are all those economic complications. But there's also then the question of those who are living on or around the border. What does it mean for them? It's not a technical trade issue for them. It's not just a political issue. It's a social and cultural issue. It's an identity. They have their own specific identity. It's a border identity. In a lot of cases, they don't trust either side. And they certainly don't trust Britain. So a lot of different uh, identities and contested identities. Uh, But there certainly is, I would argue, uh, a particular border people. And they have a particular cast of mind. Um, And they also have to navigate particular difficulties in a very obvious practical way. Getting around border crossings, particularly at times of difficulty uh, when there is inaccessibility and trying to deal with two different jurisdictions at a later stage, trying to deal with two different currencies, uh, trying to deal with, with, with smuggling. And just that sense of where do we belong? Are we Irish? Are we British? Are we Northern Irish? Or are we just border people? You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. What if someone you love asks you to help them die? What would you say? This is the powerful question at the heart of the ultimate choice. The series follows the journey of Michael and his wife Anne as they grapple with his request to choose the way he wants to die. I'm Rob Cribb, and through their story, I learned a lot about my own family. I hope the show is a way to start conversations many of us want to have, but rarely do. The ultimate choice is out now.
This is the second episode in a series called Walking the Border, first aired in 2019. We're repeating the series now to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that brought an end to 30 years of sectarian violence in Ireland. In the first episode, we visited the peace walls in Belfast, built to keep Protestants and Catholics apart during the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland that began in the late 1960s. In part two, the rule of the land, we're looking at the border in Ireland itself, that 500-kilometer invisible line that separates north and south. It's been invisible for 25 years, but the border was always there, ready to rematerialize at a moment's notice if the hard men had their way. That border is a symbol of the painful separation. A formal division between two sides, each aggrieved in their own way. The two communities are still largely estranged, politically and personally. And getting past that divide often seems to require the courage of youth. My name is Abby, I'm 17 and I'm from the Twinbrook area. My name is Jenna, I'm 18 and I'm from Dunmurray area. How do you guys know each other? Um, three springboards, so that's our youth group. So would you describe yourselves as good friends? Yeah, yeah, very good friends. How long have you guys been hanging out? A um, couple months, probably three. What are the possibilities that you would have met had you not been in Springboard? Very little, like no possibility at all. I mean, why, why not? We probably wouldn't have because we're from the same areas because they're quite like segregated. So I wouldn't have bumped into Abbey because I wouldn't have went to our area before until a year. Forgive me for the question, but does that mean you've never had a friend from the other side? Um, I have before, but that's usually just because of Springboard and meeting them from there. Like, I've never actually met them from going to their areas, you know? Yeah. It just wouldn't happen? No, it wouldn't. It seems quite odd, but, yeah. So why, so why, I mean, why did you join Springboard, even? My sister went here, and as soon as I walk in, I just feel like I'm at home. Like, it's my happy place, safe place. Um, the workers, they just treat you like their family. They, they don't treat you like, oh, do this, do that. They treat you like you are someone. Mm-hmm. So, And you? How did you end up? I mean, I joined it because at the time I really needed to and I didn't really know anyone. And I, I knew that I needed friends at the time. And um, with Springboard, there's no judgment or anything. It's very, everyone's welcome. And I'm not used to that kind of thing around in Belfast. So it's definitely what I needed at the time. Like. But, but did you know that part of the bonus was going to be meeting people you, could, you wouldn't have ever met otherwise? I mean, was that something in your mind when you joined or no? It was, it was something in my mind, but not for that reason. It was more me being nervous about meeting people from different communities because I didn't know how they'd take me, you know, but it actually worked out for the better. What was in your mind about what the other community was like? What did you, what did you grow up learning? Well, I grew up learning that they were bitter, but I knew not to listen to rumours. Uh, I just judged people by myself. I wouldn't judge them on what people say. And But some people are very different to don't wait and talk to anyone from the other side it's just the way the older generation brought us up really and your older generation how did they bring you up thinking about the other side I think the, the, the older generations definitely have an influence on you like because I was brought up thinking the same thing all Catholics are better do you know what I mean but I think I think the older generations are bitter and I don't think the younger generations actually care about any of that stuff anymore like I wouldn't think any prejudgments of anyone who's Catholic or any other religion I think it's just the older generations really just living in the past so it's just separating everyone by doing that everybody everybody yeah. the next morning the border joins the river 
The landscape reverts to green and I walk by several bridges. Steel railings, stone cladding. Crows perch on the railings and squawk. Here in 1972, a few hundred feet inside the north, Tommy Fletcher was stopped at his gate by four men wearing stocking masks. Fletcher and his wife were held at gunpoint while his house was searched. They found his rifle. Fletcher was an army reservist. The masked men then took him away, telling his wife they would not harm him, that they were using him to cover their escape back over the border. They did take him to the border, but there they shot him more than a dozen times. Tommy's wife saw them then strolling away into the south. Given the recent past and given the history and obviously the troubles and, and all those historical events that have happened near or around the border, I just wonder whether there was an emotional aspect to walking this border for you. Oh yeah, well that, that, was, uh, that was a key reason for doing it really. It, it started off... I, I did feel it was a sort of an optimistic project. It was, I was looking at a peace process border, an open border, a place that was becoming functional and even productive. But all the same, there was a certain amount of hauntedness to it. There were a lot of abandoned houses along the border. There are quite a lot of abandoned houses in Ireland generally, but I think more along the border. And uh, every now and then you might find a house where, let's say, it was on the, in Northern Ireland, but it was entered via the south, so the, the, the road leading to it was from the south. And in, the, and in those cases, those houses were always abandoned. I don't think I saw any house that was uh, lived in like that. In a way, a, a map of that border... I mean, there are two maps of that border, in, in essence. One that is the line, and the other are the stories. Yes, indeed. And, uh, well, I've made several different maps of it. And I've, I've mapped things like what... Uh, like defensive architecture and I've mapped people's crossing points that they've made to uh, to get access across the border I've also had a map called the map of encounters which is specifically about that which is about people I met and what they told me and also encounters with animal life in general though I found the border was quieter than I expected I thought I'd be bumping into people more often but it's so thinly populated really and I suppose because I had taken this principle of sticking really close to the line so I didn't just wander the border corridor vaguely I was really on the border all the time at least I was within 20 meters of it you know and that takes you through back ways and 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 fairly remote parts and so yeah you could easily go a day and not meet anyone you might see more foxes than people in a day so when I was writing about it and I wanted to be an informed guide to the border so I, 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 I did a lot of research and, and you're looking at very innocent bucolic picturesque sort of scenes but you know that over there two people are shot over there uh, a farmer was shot over there uh, an army convoy was ambushed whatever and so you're kind of aware that of, of, the, uh, of the blood on the ground as well What does it say that this line continues to um, cause rancor this long after it was uh, imposed, uh, lack of a better word. I would say the border has not been a cause of much rancor in the last 20 years because the border issues were settled insofar as they could be. Pragmatism did reign after the late 1990s and the peace process. There was an acceptance that it was in the interests of both the unionists and nationalists in Ireland 
to have a soft border. It made sense in practical terms because you have freedom of movement. It made sense as part of the wider European project, which is about the breaking down of uh, economic barriers. It made sense for a small island that was seeking to maximise its potential in non-contentious areas. Tourism, health. There are also people who were able to work on one side of the border and live on another side of the border and make that daily commute. And it's no bother because uh, all the infrastructure around the border is gone. What I would remember as a child are the, the long, long, long delays and the checkpoints. And you'd never know how long a journey would take you. But also the visibility of soldiers, of young soldiers who were armed for a very obvious reason, that the borders had been so contested uh, and were the location of much violence and smuggling of arms and attack and retreat over the border. Uh, so all of that was gone. So there wasn't much rancor uh, about that. What's been... So revealing and so depressing since the Brexit referendum is the degree to which the coarseness has returned. The accusations of bad faith uh, have returned and that the border has been brought into the spotlight in a way that it hadn't been uh, for the previous 20 years. Ironically, it was an issue that was not much discussed at all during the referendum. It's one of the big ironies of the Brexit process that the issue that was so ignored during the referendum campaign has become the most contentious, difficult uh, issue to resolve. But as a historian, of course, I would point out, well, obviously, you did not consider the weight of a century of Anglo-Irish history. This was always going to be uh, a contentious uh, issue unless it was approached in a constructive way you know, during the campaign, unless there was some thought given to how the Brexit uh, referendum vote might impact on a contested Ireland. Uh, because you have to remember the lessons of history. The lesson of 100 years ago uh, is very, very relevant now. How do you force those who want nothing to do with the United Ireland into a United Ireland? Uh, do you do it against their will? And what kind of problems are you storing up uh, for yourself? Look at the problems that developed in Northern Ireland when you had one third uh, of the population there against their will uh, and the extent of the troubles and the thousands of lives that were lost and the horrible state that it became. Um, so obviously those lessons need to be learned and need to be aired. So even as Ireland, North and South, still struggles with the legacy of the last conflict, that border is back to its old ways, dividing and unsettling the people who have to live with it. Not only that, in our time, the Irish border has also become the most contentious obstacle to Britain's exit from the European Union, its future now key to the lives of millions, in Europe as a whole, but of course on the island of Ireland too, which has lived without conflict for two decades. But well, the border itself, when when the conflict was 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 live uh, in the north, many of the border crossings and roads got shut off, so it was very difficult to get over and back. And even on those crossings where you could go over and back, I mean, there would be checks and there would be armed checks and British soldiers. And but even then, because the border is exactly as you describe, it's 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 massive, it's porous. I mean, if you were a farmer. You could walk in your front door into your farmhouse and be in the south and you could walk out your backyard and be in the north. You could have farmlands, you could farm your your cattle or grow your crops 
and you could be in both jurisdictions. It's that porous. It's not a neat, straight, you know, linear on a map far from it. So the great symbol of peace and progress in Ireland, or certainly one of them, was the fact that all of the border roads got opened. The fact that people come and go freely. In fact, for our Canadian visitors, you come here and those of you who have been here, you will know you go from south to north. You have no idea that you're, you know, that anything has changed. The peace process rendered the border still a legal reality, but invisible to the eye. And certainly for the purposes of trade, of commerce, of access to services, people coming and going to work, to the doctor, to the hospital, to collect the kids from school, it it meant nothing. And then along came Brexit and Britain outside of the European Union places a huge question mark on the enjoyment of social and, and civil rights for people who are European citizens, Irish citizens, and then therefore European citizens living in the north. So... You know, there was a whole long debate around the hardening of the border or, you know, to what extent. The reality is that we can't go back. I mean, there can't be any question of a hardening of the border. And that's not just about equipment or checks at the border. It's all about, you know, regulation and standards and harmony. We live on a tiny island. This isn't Canada. This isn't Australia. This is Ireland. It's a small wee island. And we, we rely on on that that seamlessness right across our society and our politics to make all of this work so it's 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 a hugely worrying time for everybody who lives here failure on this mission is simply not an option i plunge into a forest mud clings to my boots i stomp around a while in the gloom trying to find ways around bracken and bog pools Mushrooms grow from trees, looking like small flying saucers that have become wedged in the trunks. I finally identify the dike where it runs over the brow of a hill. It's a letdown, two ridges that are only a few feet high and a slight depression down the middle. I would have missed it without the man's advice. It continues fifty feet into the undergrowth. Hawthorns grow densely on both sides and... It looks as if the dike in more recent years was used as a path, perhaps by deer, farmers driving sheep, or the people who lived in a ruined cottage nearby. There are places of quite striking isolation in some ways. There are stretches where I felt like I was the the most remote person in Ireland. If you look at a map of Irish settlements, like we're pretty pretty spread out, probably too much to be honest there are there are there is no wilderness really in Ireland there's no it's there's there's nowhere you're never more than a few miles from a house but on the border you feel like you are uh there's extensive blanket bogs especially to the west where you can feel a real isolation and and they're kind of desolate places but I don't mean that in a negative way I think there's really beauty to it as well could you speak to the discovery that this has always been border country in a way well Ireland was traditionally divided into four provinces and the northern part of Ireland was Ulster so you have an ancient kingdom there of Ulster and its size is kind of debated smaller than it is now but there was there was an entity there was a kingdom there and it had its ways in its ways out and its capital 
at what we now call Navan Fort. So it was a region of Ireland, traditionally, always, and the history has kind of reflected that, where there's been this sort of dividing point, especially um, along the eastern end of the border. That's been a kind of frontier country for a long time, and you do feel it. I said earlier that there's no big mountain ranges or anything, which is true, but there is that sense as you come up from Dublin, you're in sort of the plains of Leinster, and then the, the land gets quite rugged and mountainous quite sharply and that that's where the border now is so here you had an, an iron age frontier and indeed there are archaeological marks as well so we have a structure called the Dorsey it's about 2,000 years old and that appears to have been a defensive wall with, uh, with a gap in it uh, so it's some sort of official entrance and exit point in and out of the old kingdom of Ulster but uh one can see one can see the obvious the obvious fact that this was frontier country and in previous eras as well how often do you get defensive do you feel like you have to get defensive about who you are and and where you come from not not really like because i don't it sounds kind of mad but i don't really feel like i relate to my community i feel like i'd relate more to the other communities because i don't really have any friends that are protestant all my friends would be catholic i don't know i just didn't really fit in with my community at all and for you, what, what's when you stand in front of other people and explain who you are and what you what you aren't? What do you say? I would just say that I'm not really a better person or sectarian, and I'm more open to seeing what people's personalities are like. Actually, just a very short while ago, we were talking to other people, you know, sort of looking, describing the situation in Belfast, and they say that that it's not this generation is not as sectarian as their parents and their parents. You're 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 not you're not nodding. Yeah. No, you they. Your head. Why? They are. See, when I I was about thirteen. Now I'm going to say I did run about with people in the Lenadine area, and there's a Protestant area facing it, directly facing it, and they always used to go fight, throw battles at each other from across the road. The the police station was literally right there, and the it's mad the way the younger kids can be sectarian as well, just because. Oh, she's a Protestant. Oh, she's a Catholic, and it's uh, segregated schools as well. People are telling us, no, this is—it's—it's it's diluted by the generations. Is that true? I, I mean, I don't think so. I think that the older generations definitely have a very heavy impact on how people our age view other communities, and I think that there's still a lot of families that will will drill it into their kids that all Protestants are this, all Catholics are this, and it's it's still going on. Like, and even the arranged fights from different areas just to fight other Catholics or other Protestants, like it still goes on. Have you seen any of these fights? Um, not personally, no, but I know people that have and it just, it sounds very bloody. It doesn't really have a good outcome at all. It's just bloody, like, yeah. How does that make you feel just as a, a daughter of this, of this part of the world? I mean, it, it makes me angry because I mean, there's no need for it anymore. Like the, it, the troubles are over, it's done. It should be left in the dirt and that it should be over. I mean, there shouldn't be any bitterness anymore. People should just be free to live where they want to live and be who they want to be. There shouldn't be any, like, divide. When do you get worried? When, what makes you think maybe this, this, what you have going here, the two of you, might be endangered? What kind of days make you think that? I'd be afraid to go to her area because of paramilitaries and stuff that goes on over there and... I literally walk in her door and walk out, that's it. I try and get out as quick as I can, but at the same time, it's just 
scary to think that there's still people out there like that. Like our friendship, I would have never seen coming. You know, um, you just wish that other people could be the same. And do you, what worries you? I mean, when you hear the news sometimes or anything? At, at this stage, I don't even watch the news anymore because there's just no point. It's the same thing over and over. I mean, I feel safer in Abby's community, really, because my community is so strung up in paramilitaries. I mean, there's signs everywhere. There's big murals and all. And it's just, it's, of course, Abby wouldn't feel safe. Like, we go to the shop and she'll whisper. I mean, like, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but it's just what you do. It will be extraordinarily difficult to bring the two sides together in harmony, given the deep, deep differences that exist and the the depth of the roots attached to those differences uh, culturally um, and in every other way. But that doesn't mean it cannot be done. It can be done in time. You've also got to consider the passing of generations. I found it interesting that there's been a very noticeable spike in the number of unionists applying for Irish passports on purely pragmatic grounds. So that in time may think may uh, involve a rethink on the part of unionists. I mean, there are civic unionists who are coming together as well to try and take the emotion out of this question uh, and think practically about what might be involved in a new Ireland, in a shared Ireland or an agreed Ireland. You don't have to abandon your own culture. You don't have to allow your culture to be absorbed. There's no reason why they can't coexist. If that border were to come back, does that necessarily mean that the past has to come back with it? You would like to think that the era of intense violence as a result of a divided Ireland on the border question is gone. But the reality is a hard border in Ireland has always attracted violence. And there will always be attempts to disrupt and destabilise as a result of the border. There was an IRA border campaign in the late 1950s. Before that, there were campaigns to try and target customs posts and so on on the border. And the border was always a contested region during the height of the troubles between the late 60s uh, and the 1990s because of its porous nature, uh, because of the very intense feelings around political feelings and military feelings around the border areas. And also it caused an awful lot of accusations to be levelled against the uh, Irish government that they weren't doing enough to prevent arms smuggling and terrorism and so on. So it's always been associated with that. I do fear that there is going to be, as a result of, of, of this Brexit fallout and as a result of all the focus on the border, there is going to be an opportunity for, for those we call dissident Republicans. There is going to be an opportunity for them uh, to use this. Some would have been gleeful with the Brexit referendum on the grounds that it would give them a certain degree of um, cause to campaign, to destabilise. Uh, there is negligible support for dissident Republicans in Ireland at this stage. But as again we know from history, it doesn't take large numbers to bring serious disruption and to foment very destabilising situations um, and to wreak havoc. For the tiny island, it's a precarious moment in its history. A people who know all too well the price of life with barriers and who've also lived the benefits of bringing them down, now yet again forced to imagine going back in time 
to an almost but never forgotten past of conflict, ruin, and death. Walls and barriers have always been presented as solutions, but they invariably construct new problems. In Ireland's case, a hard border would rekindle old grievances, old obstacles, and reopen old wounds. Still, in a complicated and divided society, it's all too easy for walls to take root, to become a normal part of life, and as a result, much harder to bring down. Which brings us back full circle for a last word on the peace walls of Belfast, the barriers that once helped to keep the peace, but now just keep Protestants and Catholics apart. It's not a peace wall, it's literally a divide between the two communities. Like, it's not, it doesn't show any form of peace whatsoever, really. Barricades, uh, graffiti everywhere, run down looking. It's just not nice. It looks very unwelcoming. There's spikes on the walls. There's, yeah, it's not nice. How would you describe it? Well, there is some good pieces of art, like, but that's just trying to cover up what's really going on. It's trying to cover up that we're actually separated in the different communities. How did you see it when you were growing up? You grew up near here, right? Yeah, I just, I didn't know it was a peace wall, to be honest. I thought it was just history and, you know, like people just doing art and then I started to grow up to realise it was meant to be a so-called peace wall. Mm-hmm. So what, what happens to this gate? It locks at seven o'clock at night. So if anyone wants to get in or out of the other communities, they can't get in or out just in, well, so-called violence as well. I don't think it would happen. What do you both think about it being called a peace wall? It's just that using that word. It's ironic, really, to be honest. I mean, it doesn't show any peace whatsoever. If there was peace, there wouldn't be a wall. Do you know what I mean? The only nice thing about it, as I said, is the art. What does the art tell you? The art's the only piece on the wall. Then what divides us? That wall divides us. It's the only piece on the wall? Yeah. Yeah. So the art is peaceful? Yeah, but the wall isn't. You've been listening to The Rule of the Land, the second part of Walking the Border, a series we first aired in 2019. On the program, you heard historian Dermot Ferreter, writer Garrett Carr, leader of Sinn Féin Mary Lou MacDonald, and students Abby Morris and Jenna Woodside. Our thanks to all of them. Special thanks to Julie Burgess and her team at Springboard Opportunities for their help in making this program. The Rule of the Land was produced by Philip Coulter. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayan. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.